welcome back everybody to the uncensored cmo now this episode i have got a absolute superstar for you he is none other than mr rory sutherland as vice chairman at ogilvy and also the author of the book alchemy the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense uh, one of the best books i have ever read and in fact i found myself uh, reading it and highlighting so many different sections it's just packed full of things that really were unexplained before that just suddenly now make sense and uh, how economics doesn't always tell us the answer and uh, the important role of behavioral science if you really want to understand why people buy the things that they do now this episode is an absolute blast i could have talked to rory for ages Uh, he is an absolute gent a lovely man full of wisdom and experience and insight we cover so much including why economics doesn't explain everything and the importance of behavioral science and how is the book nudge that actually inspired rory to do what he does he explains with the thinking behind the book and how that marketing itself can be as valuable as the product and in fact that is the idea behind alchemy now i should tell you that uh, in this episode rory uses uh, one word a fair few times ergodicity Now, I have to confess, I didn't know what ergodicity was before, but it's worth looking up and finding out what it means, because as Rory so eloquently describes, 10 times 1 is not always the same as 1 times 10. And uh, I'll let you listen and find out why that is. We end as well with Rory confessing to something that he has never told anyone. So it's worth listening through to the end just to find out what that is. And it's rather surprising, but uh, I'll leave you hanging there. Let's get into the conversation. This is Rory Sutherland. Welcome, Rory. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with, I think, the podcast with uh, the title I like most. Oh, there we of go. Of all the many I've been invited on, I think Brilliant. this is a fantastic idea. Thank you, Rory. That's very kind of you to say that. So briefly introduce yourself, how you got to where you are today. What's been your journey so far? I suppose a few significant moments. First of all, I was very, very lucky, although it was at the time an accident, that I started work in what was then Ogilvy and May the Direct, which was part of Ogilvy, with all the advantages that brings, but which was a direct marketing agency, uh, and a direct marketing agency with an extraordinary bunch of colleagues. I only realized that a few years later, Drayton Bird being the most obvious, um, Steve Harrison, a really interesting mix of talents, but also, of course, the other benefit of direct marketing, which is that you do get feedback. And so very early on, I learned that there were a lot of things in terms of the response rate in response to communications, which bore no relation to the assumptions of mainstream economics. So what would determine the response rate would be much more whether you allowed them to reply by phone or by post than what the product was and how much it cost. And um, I'll tell this story now, in fact. It was a project working for BT that first got me interested in this. We, we all knew, if you spoke to Drayton Bird, uh, he would say, for example, one, research isn't a very reliable guide. So I was learning one of the big lessons of psychology and economics, in fairness. Economics distinguishes between stated preference and revealed preference. People, in a sense, don't really know what they want. Certainly, they don't have introspective access to their 
desires, and they can't really describe what they'll do in advance, least of all in a public setting like a focus group. Because in the presence of other people, what we're really thinking is not what is the, the honest answer, but how does my answer make How does it come look? across to everyone else? Yeah, totally. And so it had long yeah, been yeah. discovered yeah. in direct marketing that everybody in research would say, well, I'd much prefer to have three months free premium worth £90 versus a free clock radio. When you <laughs> tested the two, uh, three months premium free was more or less worthless Whereas the clock radio trebled. So is that why I've got so many pens and clocks in my house? You have, exactly. No, no, no. So the, if you're selling an intangible product, yeah. offering an intangible free gift is almost a catastrophe. Which is why, by the way, the government is mostly squandering 24 billion a year on pension tax relief because it's an extraordinarily unmotivating way of spending that money. And I've asked a whole bunch of marketers. Uh, do you think if you offered people under 30 an offer which is sign up for an automatically increasing pension now, which increases pro rata with your salary, okay, or even disproportionately with your salary, uh, sign up for it now and get a free iPad, would that be more effective? Cost, I think, about half a billion a year to do that, maybe less. Would that be more effective at motivating young people to get a pension than the current system, which costs 24 billion? And every marketer I've spoken to pauses for a second and goes, Yes, yeah, I reckon so, yeah. You never walk past car phone warehouse yeah. and see a poster that says, Get a new mobile phone tariff and we'll give you a great handset in 2047. I know. Well, I mean, I, I studied economics at university and I, I never understood. So in economics terms, they always talk about utility yeah. and maximizing lifetime value that, you know, you defer gratification today, you know, to get it tomorrow. And I, I, I thought human beings do not make those kind of rational decisions. You don't sit there before you're about to buy something and do the complex maths and trajectory and try and work it out. You know, we're just not like that, are we? And so interestingly, I've occasionally gone in and said that I understand from an economically rational point of view, you want people to get pensions when they're young. Yeah. Um, from a Darwinian point of view, the preoccupation of the 25-year-old may be in securing a good lifetime mate. Yes. And <laughs> in that... Okay, there are lots of forms of expenditure which make for better first date conversations yes. than um, how's, how's, how's your pension? pension <laughs> yes, you know. I mean, having a very good pension might attract a mate. You could, you could do some sure it's the yeah. kind of mate How many you... Tinder profiles are talking about their pension pots? You know, exactly. No, no, precisely. <laughs> yes. You see, and and also, of course, you know, signalling bravery and a certain, yeah. a, you yeah. know, a certain level of um, courage is yeah. one of one sexual signalling technique yeah. among humans. And so, looking really, really cautious at the age of twenty-three, if you. <laughs> you think about it, there's a reason that male strippers dress as firemen, not as accountants, isn't there? <laughs> when you think about it, okay. <laughs> That's brilliant, right? <laughs> now, so, so looking, this is, by the way, a very, very useful thing. Um, and it's, it's a discovery which has been made in marketing. I Research isn't necessarily very valuable. It's been made in psychology. Economics has revealed preference, stated preference. What evolutionary psychology has is uh, the proximate motivation and the ultimate motivation. And the interesting thing that evolutionary psychology says is that the deep down ultimate motivation, which we are almost kept unaware of, yeah. that our evolutionary psychology buries our ultimate motivation so that we don't reveal it. Our proximate official motivation may be extraordinarily tangential to that. So I give the example of my book of toothpaste, which is we ostensibly clean our teeth because of dental hygiene and dental health. 
If you look at when people really clean their teeth, it's before a date, first thing in the morning. Fear of bad breath and vanity and what a Darwinian psychologist would say is you know, some sort of status or mating motive yeah. is much more motivating, okay, to us in deep down than actually any stuff about enamel or gum health. And no one in a research group went, do you know what? I've got this terrible breath. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, I, so one bit of evidence. Yeah, from, yeah. I always say, look, you can treat consumer capitalism like the Galapagos Islands, yeah. as Darwin treated the Galapagos Islands, which is you can look at the oddities. And one of the great oddities is that all toothpaste is flavoured with mint. Now, if you think about it, there's probably a Darwinian thing why bad breath is really unattractive because it's evidence of ill health, possibly. I don't know. What's the reason would be fascinating? But you know, if you think about it, bad breath would be a fairly major, you know, a date with Cameron Diaz who had absolutely <laughs> right yes. breath would leave yeah, you with I, a kind I, of... Yeah, tip me over the other ones. Yeah, it's really worth it. You yeah. know, it doesn't really work. But I imagine <laughs> the same as the, the opposite way around. But no, what fascinated me was that there's, there's a deep thing going on yeah. and you can explore it with psychology. You can explore it with better forms of behavioral mm. economics. You can explore it with evolutionary theory. But what's really going on isn't what's officially going on. Yeah. It's a bit like J.P. Morgan's phrase that every man has two reasons for doing things, a good reason and the real reason. And the real reason. I think that's fascinating. And, and so, you know, the discovery was repeatedly in direct marketing. A, as Drayton Bird would say, there are a large number of things you can't ask people because they don't really know. You yeah. can only experiment. Yeah. There's a great quote in your book as well. Is it from Jonathan Haidt about the sort of your rational mind? Yeah. You, you, you think it's the White House. It's probably more like the press office. You know? yeah, they think it's the Oval Office, when in reality it's the press it's office. It's the press office, yeah. But our rational brain is actually thinking not, um, it's not really the part that makes the decisions. Yeah. What it's doing is hastily um, compiling a plausible sounding post-rationalization to explain decisions made for reasons it doesn't understand somewhere else. Yeah. So how do you, how that's do you, what a press how do you office does, it? isn't it? I don't know why yeah. they made this decision. Yeah. I've got to put a positive spin on it. I've got to seem rational. So I will employ post-rationalization number 274 yes. off the shelf. And we're very, very good at post-rationalizing, which yeah. is why we've got to be very careful about rationality. Because what we tend to do is go, this is plausible, therefore it's rational. Yeah. This is rational, therefore it's true. And actually, both of those things are a leap. The very fact that something's plausible doesn't mean it's necessarily rational. The yep. very fact that something's rational doesn't mean yep. that it's true. And so what we've got to do is challenge our epistemology. The great technique of a marketer is to go, this is a good story about why people are cleaning their teeth, yeah. you know, buying this, selling that, refusing to buy that. Let's look for a few other explanations which may seem surprisingly oblique. And the, I mean, the weirdest one I discovered was this very early experience with BT, which was selling what were called star services in the UK, network services they later became, which is call diversion, call waiting, yes. all those things. And you had to pay a small monthly premium if you wanted these services enabled on your new digital exchange. And what was fascinating is we sent out letters which told people about the service, described the service, and allowed them to order it either by calling a free number or by ticking a box on, on a pre-lasered form at the bottom of the letter and returning it in a free post envelope. And the client, for some reason, had a bit of a hissy fit because he said, I don't understand why we're allowing people to respond by post. I mean, we're the phone company. Why are we giving yes. business to the <laughs> true. Royal Mail? Yes. Um, uh, and um, we're trying to foster a phone 
culture. So yeah. we said, well, before you make that decision, let's test it. Because at the time, responses were coming in kind of 5% by post, 2% by phone, something like that, when you offered a choice. We tested three routes, phone only, post only, and both. Phone only brought in a response of 2%. Uh, post only brought in a response of slightly less than five, like 4.9, 4.8. And when you offer people a choice, it brought in seven, which was pretty much the sum total of both. Yeah. Now, to an economist, okay, economists understand transaction costs, but that suggests that the single biggest determinant of whether you buy the product is the channel through which you can order it. Yeah. Now, by the way, I think that has vital implications for lots and lots of businesses, which is a lot of businesses are trying to drive people to buy online because it's the most efficient channel. As a result, you are losing sales. The assumption that if you only allow people to buy online, they'll buy online is erroneous. That's like McDonald's assuming that if you open a drive through window, the only customer you'll get will be people who would have gone into the restaurant had there not been a drive through window. Yes. And I would argue that the, of the people using the McDonald's drive through window, possibly a majority would not have eaten at McDonald's if yes. that channel didn't, yeah. of interaction hadn't existed. And so channel preference is clearly very strong for whatever reason. Mm. And that's the kind of thing where I suddenly went, OK, there's a whole missing discipline here, which... And, and my book was originally, years ago, going to be called The Thing for Which We Have No Name. Um, oh, okay. Because I always thought there's a whole area of science... And there's a whole area of activity in agencies and in marketing, which we don't have a name for and we don't have a department for. And I, I always thought, look, we have a creative department, you have a media and targeting department, okay? We actually need to have a, a third department which asks questions like this, which is, and my suggestion, by the way, to BT, yeah. looking at those letters, was the best suggestion I can make is you offer a fax response channel, it was fairly early. I was going to say, this okay. must be 90s. Because if you yeah. let people fax yeah. their response, you'll probably get another half a percent. Yes. Okay, because the 90s were the peak of, uh, peak of the fax. Uh, apparently the fax still survives in the NHS. As oh, does it? <laughs> you do occasionally see it, don't you, on um, like websites or people's cards? I sent... I think I might have received one last yeah, year. In yeah. my entire working life, I received one telex and sent one. But... My view is that there's a whole area of inquiry which, because of the default to economic logical assumption, yeah. isn't even... Be there are a whole load of questions which aren't even being asked. Yeah. And that's my issue, which is when we're obsessed with being logical, economics provides us with a very, very good tube map that enables us to look logical. And we set a very low burden of proof on any recommendation that's consistent with economic theory. Yeah. And so... Weirdly, at a board meeting of any company, saying our product isn't selling very well, so we're going to drop the price, which should be the most highly contested suggestion you can ever make in a business setting, because dropping your price is an, an irreversible and unbelievably expensive way of selling. Bottom line okay. and everything, yeah. Okay, it should be the last thing you're allowed to do. Because, of, because in economics makes you look rational, it's actually set a very low burden of proof. Yeah. Whereas weirdly, if you said we're going to put the price up and we're going to do an ad campaign featuring an animated dancing duck, <laughs> you'd be argued to death. It's so true. I mean, the amount, of, the amount of board meetings I've been in or where we've presented the plan for the following year and uh, the sales department have recommended we're going to increase our promotional discount by 50%. We'll grow top-line sales by 20 and then I've had to argue for even keeping my advertising flat. 
Yes, it's, I know. It's, it's, it's madness. And it's like, you know, the, the price will discount growing like a weed. And, the, 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 you know, the, the, there's no end to that. You know, the end is you're chasing the bottom line then. I, in terms I got of very lucky because I once you know. said to one of our clients, before you do that, try yeah. putting the price up. Yeah. Now, it was a menu item on a, in a fast food restaurant in South Africa. And they had a product that wasn't selling. And I said, now, this is what I call probabilistic decision-making. It's not that I expect it to work, but the consequences of it working are so valuable and the consequences of doing the opposite are so expensive that it's worth a try. Yes. <laughs> and weirdly, the price went up, demand went up. Now, I have a hunch about why this is quite often, which is a kind of bifurcation in retail, which is... People get a thrill from a bargain and they get a thrill from a treat, but they don't get a thrill from the mid-market. Yes, and so this product, which was quite a premium product, was priced in a way that it wasn't a bargain and it wasn't a treat. And therefore, it, my argument was maybe it appealed to nobody. Um, and by putting the price up, you put it in the treat bucket. Yes. And people go, let's face it, people go into McDonald's planning to splurge or planning to stinge. Yes. And so something that doesn't let you do either of those two things might be actually a bit of a dud. Uh, you know, and so, but the fascinating thing, which is truly terrible, is the extent to which anybody making a recommendation that's essentially consistent with economic theory um, is given such an easy ride. Because generally, the recommendations of economic theory implementing them is, is the most expensive way of solving a problem yeah. because you're bribing people to buy your product. Yeah. And by the way, the, the area I'd most like to get involved in, since I'm talking to an audience of marketing directors, isn't the communications budget, it's the trade marketing budget. Because that's spent with about 2% of the creativity. Yes. Of the comms, you know, yes, there are a true. huge number of people agonizing over every semicolon in the communications spend. Yeah, and no one would dare challenge it. But like, actually, well, this is, well, I'll know. give you a corker one, yeah. right? Okay. Um, consumers prefer 50% extra free to 33% off. Okay, now that is an unbelievably valuable discovery um, because the cost of offering 50% extra free is relatively small, whereas the cost in terms of margin to dropping your price by 33%. So to the consumer, they're notionally identical. Uh, I would argue that perceptually they're not identical. And the reason is Jeremy Bullmore's phrase, which is that percept perceptually there's a difference between a bonus and a bribe. Okay, yes. And dropping yeah, yeah, your yeah, price yeah. looks like a mark of desperation, whereas um, uh, adding in quantity looks like a mark of generosity. Yes. Okay. And we perceive them differently, okay, depending on context. Now, the great thing is that 50% extra free is just as valuable to the consumer as 33% off, but much less costly, yes. certainly over the long term, to the manufacturer and the retailer. Yeah. So, in any high margin product, anyway. Okay, actually, any product, pretty much. Um, so, so there's a whole amount of knowledge which could, a whole amount of knowledge and creativity which could be deployed uh, and put against the trade marketing budget. Whereas, in fact, the trade marketing budget is being spent in a kind of mindless way, and that's because of what I call my missing discipline. And this was the moment in my life which was transformative. Lots of them were transformative. Working with Drayton, with Steve Harrison, were yeah. hugely transformative, but. I was ill, and I spent a lot of time reading economics books for fun, and I thought this is incredibly elegant, but it bears no relation to the behavior I've seen as a marketer over 30 years. And there really needs to be a discipline, which is the science of knowing what economics is wrong about. Yeah. And 
on the back of getting ill, effectively, I discovered economics blogs. And on one of those economics blogs, which I think was Marginal Revolution, I, d I just saw a post which said that Richard Thaler's book, Nudge, was coming out very shortly. And I, I went and investigated more, discovered behavioral economics, ordered Nudge from Amazon.com to be delivered by FedEx, I think, because um, I wanted it before I got better. Um, I think I ended up with the second copy of Nudge in the UK. Oh, did you? The first <laughs> copy being given to David Cameron by Rowan Silver. Oh, of Silver, course, that's what made it famous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And fascinatingly, I got Richard over to speak to the IPA. I'd also got Jeffrey Miller, an evolutionary psychologist, over later to speak to the IPA. And um, it was a really interesting thing because it was finally a pet academic discipline for marketers which explains why um, the great problem is anybody who studied economics, because of the assumptions that make economics mathematically neat, which are perfect information, yeah. perfect trust, yeah. stable preferences. I mean, okay, yeah. if you believe that's your ideal world, then you've just created a fancy world where marketing doesn't need to exist. Yes. And as a result, that's why finance hates marketing. Because finance, in its model of the world, sees marketing as a necessary evil, not as a source of value creation. And therefore, the only role they can see for it, and I think marketers have played a kind of Stockholm Syndrome role here, is uh, you make the marketing as efficient as possible, because all you can do is essentially treat it as a ne necessary form of a cost of sale. Now, interestingly... Uh, among lots of other people, biologists understand advertising, they understand signalling, peacock's tails, yes. <laughs> flowers, uh, you know, coloration in snakes, all that sort of stuff. Um, Austrian school economists regard, and now this explains Peter Drucker, okay. So Peter Drucker is himself Austrian. His dad was best mates with Schumpeter. My guess is I think Drucker hung out with Schumpeter, probably knew Hayek. And the Austrian school regard marketing as as much a source of value creation as manufacturing because they have a different take which assumes imperfect information and that value is created psychologically. It's not created in the factory. The only form of value that matters is perceptual. It's someone's willingness to pay for something which is a product not only of what the thing is but how they perceive it. And therefore... Um, if you had an Austrian finance director, which you won't have because Austrian school economists are rare, but if you could employ an Austrian school finance director, he'd be actually incredibly eager to up your marketing budget. Yeah. But I, I think these battles are very real. Um, they are incredibly and real. They, they, uh, they're it, incredibly real, not necessarily because we're conscious of them, but yeah. it's Keynes's point that, you know, um, perfectly ordinary, commonsensical people are influenced Unknown, unbeknownst yeah. to themselves by the scribblings of some long-dead economist. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at the, the, the makeup of the boardroom, the types of people, what they value, and also I think if you look at the digitization and data drive over the last few years, you can see how the, the kind of marketing discipline is, is almost marginalized if... It, as you don't do as you suggest we don't kind of come back with the well interestingly you know, the I gave, what, what i suddenly realized and i've i've stopped being an advertising uh, advocate and mm. become a marketing advocate really um because i've suddenly realized that this is what typically happens okay marketing gets stereotyped as marcoms yeah okay as a result, in any organisation where the Marcoms spend isn't particularly high, which means outside the packaged goods industry, 
or in any organization where there is a highly technical or financialized culture, which would be telcos, for example, uh, anything financial, uh, anything where you have a strong economics culture and a low level of communication spend, the influence of marketing drops below the threshold. Okay, because they're seeing it as Marcoms. And if the budget, B2B would be the most extreme case, okay? Because typically, if you're Rolls-Royce aero engines, okay, you, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about marketing, and marketing is not a huge uh, area of cost. Um, now, the really interesting thing there is that mathematically, I mean, I literally mean mathematically, by which I mean in pure fact, okay, the marketing viewpoint on everything is highly complementary to the viewpoint that will take place in most board meetings, by which I mean most board meetings are looking at an aggregated snapshot of activity, yeah. by the way, with one revenue line and seven cost lines. And so, as I think Jules Goddard at London Business School says, generally in a board meeting, the attention is devoted to those eight things in that ratio. Yes, yeah, seven yeah. times the attention <laughs> is paid to cost reduction as it is to maximizing revenue. Yeah. Okay. Now, the point about that is that is only one way of looking at the world. If you are blind to the non-ergodic time series perspective of the marketer, which only a marketer really has, possibly HR as well, okay? And there are two fundamentally different things about marketing. One, efficiency and effectiveness are not the same thing in marketing, okay? So in logistics, they are. I would argue that the better the creative work, the worse you should make your targeting. Yes. Because <laughs> the more point. persuasive yeah, yeah. the advertisement, yeah. the more is to be gained by more people seeing it. Yeah. Because although it may be less efficient that way, your chance of creating future custom, okay, may over, over the long term pay you to practice less focused targeting. 100%. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing that's weird. The second thing is literally this ergodic question, which is arising in mathematics and in physics. Now, a very weird thing for me, but I'd love to do it, is for a marketer to go into a highly financialized, mathematically numerate board meeting and start asking questions like, are you assuming ergodicity? <laughs> okay. Because be brilliant. It's a bit like one of yes. those things, which is, if you've ever got a data presentation, I think you yeah. can say, but have you corrected for heteroskedasticity? Oh, this is brilliant, okay. right. The great Taking notes here now. You don't, you don't actually need to know what it means, but, but you can the, just floor anybody just on the just trump the entire yeah. room, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the point about that is that what is a good idea, what is an optimal thing to do over time yeah. under multiplicative dynamics is not the same as what's a good thing to do on average in a single-shot game. And it's a distinction which they spotted in physics quite early, but which is uh, um, the paper by Ole Peters and Murray Gelman. Murray Gelman's Nobel Prize discovered quarks. I mean, he's a kind of towering genius, uh, died recently. But he wrote a paper with Ole Peters, who's based in London, I'm delighted to say, um, which basically said that economics has got this entirely wrong. Their whole idea of expected utility and the probability of expected utility, which underlies all the kind of microeconomic yeah. foundations yeah. of what they do, is wrong. Yeah. Now, I think, I've talked to Ole, and I said, look, very simple, I'm at the edge of my maths envelope here. Just tell me if I'm talking crap. Okay, so I hope, <laughs> I hope so if I'm okay. It is perfectly rational for a consumer to make a decision on the basis of a trade-off between bias and variance, so that under multiplicative dynamics, 
It's more important to avoid catastrophic outcomes, particularly two or three catastrophic outcomes in a row, than it is to attain perfection in every shot. So a brand is a very reliable way of actually ensuring that whatever you're buying, can Samsung guarantee they will always make the best $2,000, $1,000 TV in the world? No, nobody can do that, okay? But what a brand is a reliable indicator of is that nothing you sell under your own name is going to be a crock of shite. Yeah. And so, in the avoidance of terribleness, which is our evolved instinct, in a non-ergodic environment with a high degree of uncertainty, okay, brand preference is completely rational. And so, um, this, this ties back to something which, in an incredible act of prescience, um, a man talking to David Ogilvy, I think in the 1960s, a man called Joel Raffleson, who's still alive and is a retired Ogilvy copywriter in Chicago, as is his wife, Fantastic people. He said to David Ogilvy in the 1960s, he said, I don't think people choose brand B over brand A because they think it's better. I think they choose it because they're more certain that it's good. And what you might call the certainty heuristic, which is avoiding amb ambiguous outcomes where, you know, that television that's 200 bucks cheaper than the Samsung, okay, when you look at it, you don't say, uh, okay, um, well, it's just as big, it's cheaper. The reason you don't buy it is because of kind of visceral fear. And the visceral fear is driven by the 5% chance that it's absolutely awful. And you have to suffer the ridicule of your friends. Goodness knows <laughs> what else. Well, it's like why you, get, why you might go to McDonald's when you're travelling through France. You think, why on earth would you stop at McDonald's when you've got French cuisine at your disposal? But it's just that little nagging doubt. You're looking at the restaurant that you've never been to before. You want to know what you're going to get. Do you know the best part? Yeah. This is what Hussein Bolt, in the week or so before he competes in the Olympics, eats pretty much exclusively Chicken McNuggets. Now, the logic for that is, pretty much, he's the best runner in the world as things stand. There are two reasons why he won't win. One, not enough protein. Yeah. Okay. Two, he gets ill. He gets ill. Yeah. And my argument, we all know this as marketers, we've all had the shits from a Michelin-starred restaurant yeah. Yeah. a few times in our life, okay? We've never had the shits going to the Golden Arches. Yeah. Okay, and so when, and this is why, by the way, I'm cross that there isn't a McDonald's at um, Terminal Five at Heathrow, because there's a seafood restaurant, right? Caviar House or whatever it is. Yeah, okay. yeah. There I'm, is, going, yeah. I'm about to be in yeah. a pressurised metal tube for eleven. Am hours. I going to risk the oysters? Am I yeah. really going to risk oysters? <laughs> the pro, you know, the prospect of, of, yeah, of explosive yeah. diarrhoea <laughs> at thirty-five thousand feet with eight hours to go, and yeah. we're still over northern Canada. No, thank you. <laughs> so please give me a McDonald's. You know. The, the, this is, I think, a really interesting thing because Colin Camera, who's a who's a Caltech, basically agrees with me on this. That it is the marketing viewpoint that is the only viewpoint that captures the view of the consumer, and the view of the consumer and what the consumer is trying to do is mathematically at odds yes. in many cases yeah. with what the business thinks is optimal. So, at a very simple level. On a spreadsheet, there's no difference between 10 people buying something once and one person buying something 10 times. Yeah. In psychology, they're hugely different. Yeah. And that's why I think that the whole behavioral science world is so important to marketeers because it's, it's given us some legitimacy for what we're doing. And we can have the conversation in the boardroom that maybe yep. we didn't... Using, it, using language, it, by the way, with the finance director, because it's called behavioral economics. Yes. The finance yeah, director yeah. now has to perk up his ears and listen. Yes. Because if you said we're here to talk about psychology, the finance director is allowed yeah. to basically shut down. That word know. science is pretty important. It's pretty important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
And so understanding this and understanding, by the way, what's rational, what's irrational. Now, by the way, I mentioned B2B companies, companies that don't have a marketing function. What's the biggest spending entity on the planet that doesn't have a marketing function at all? Government. So you have an entity in the shape of government which spends 40% of GDP, yet its Marcom's budget is B&Q plus spec savers. Now, first of all, there is an inordinate range of problems to be solved by people by taking the non-ergodic perspective, okay? And I've talked about train overcrowding here, just as a very simple uh, solution you can grasp. Engineers, so anything with a strong engineering culture, finance culture, um, anything with a a nerdy culture in general, tech, is inimical to marketing because they think it's fluffy and we've done done ourselves no favours in disabusing them of that. But let's take train overcrowding. If you describe, if you just define it as the number of people standing up on a train, okay, then it's a monolithic problem and it can only be solved with engineering. More trains, longer trains, uh, making the seats in the trains like fucking ironing boards <laughs> so you can fit in an extra train yes. at the cost of passenger comfort. You can do it that way. Okay. Now, a marketer does it the non-ergodic way. They say, look, 100 people who have to stand 10% of the time are not the same as 10 people who have to stand 100% of the time. Therefore, what we have to do is solve the problem where it's psychologically worst. And that's and now it's no longer a monolithic problem. You simply say, right, we'll run two trains a day in each direction, which are exclusively for annual season ticket holders. Yeah. Okay? Okay? Now, what we'll also do is we might actually make first class bigger, okay, and make first class for people with A, a first class ticket, or B, an annual season ticket. That would be a perfectly good solution, because what you're doing is you're giving better seating to frequent customers. Now, a restaurant would do that instinctively. If you eat at the same restaurant every week, they don't put you in a table next to the toilets, well, unless you're incontinent <laughs> or something, I guess. Yeah. Okay, but um, it, it, in the same way, if you look at what an airline does, they've already solved the problem, but rail companies haven't looked at airlines. Now, if you flew to Frankfurt every week, right, in economy, because your company has some Grindian travel policy, okay? Now, if you flew every week to Frankfurt in economy, after about 15 weeks, you'd be in the silver club or the gold club of BA. And although you'd still be in an economy seat most of the time, your checking experience, your security experience, your lounge experience, your boarding experience would be that of a business class passenger. And the point about that is it's more important for lots of reasons to reduce irritation for people who encounter it frequently than for people who encounter it once a year. If I'm off in a Hawaiian shirt on a jolly with my family and that's my only encounter with BA once a year, queuing for security isn't that irritating, okay? If you travel every week, it drives you batshit crazy, okay? I mean, I only go to the U. I joined that global entry thing because I just about go to the US often enough to make, you know, the, the, the queue for immigration a bit of a pain. I think American Airlines must have taken this extreme, because I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, and uh, fl- flying to Toronto, there were eight classifications of boarding. Eight? Eight. So you had your platinum, then you had silver, then you had frequent flyer, then you had five other categories of, of kind of priority one, two, three, and I was in the fifth, right? So I literally laughed. Yep. There were about 18 people on this flight. <laughs> it was hilarious. So it's like they'd categorised as eight different so times. So there were sort of two <laughs> of you per... Yeah, I know. <laughs> there was one that nothing, no one was in, and I was just kind of sat there, you know, slightly lonely, the last person to get on the plane. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was but, just but hilarious. It's a fascinating thing because it's a case where government has never asked that question. 
It's never asked the question, where do we solve that problem? And of course, government tends to assume a kind of egalitarianism as well, which is we must optimize for the average, solve for the average, and what's best for the average is best for everyone. Marketing and capitalism are brilliant precisely because they don't solve for the average. You know, if you've got 20 weird people, 20% of people are weird, that's a market niche. Yes. You know, yes. uh, you don't solve for the average and you don't attempt to. And so the marketing mindset is essential. I would argue that actually, you know, if I, if I had to take a marketing job, uh, a border level marketing job at a huge industrial concern could be incredibly valuable, even if your comms budget was zero. Now, this is my criticism of the agency world, okay? We haven't been paid on commission since 1989, and yet we still behave as though we are, yes. okay? Instead of, management consultants don't get excited in proportion to someone's X budget. They get excited in proportion to the value they can create. We can create a huge amount of value without necessarily giving money to Rupert Murdoch. Okay, by simply saying, don't do that, do this, try calling it that, um, launch a really expensive variant so that your product looks cheap, all those kind of things, okay? You can do all those things, charge in a different way, use a different frame of reference, hundreds of things we can do. By the way, in alignment with sales as well, which don't require comms in the conventional sense. And so my argument is everybody who's run a, 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 a marketing services network like WPP or Omnicom, has spent all the time trying to be more efficient at what we do already. My argument is that actually our market scope for the deployment of consumer insight married to creativity is literally 10 or 20 times bigger. I couldn't agree more. Okay? So we, we know, one of the joys of working in the behavioral science practice is we have clients whom, you know, if I went to new business and said, are you interested in pitching for the Thames Valley Police? They go, well, what's their advertising spend? And my argument is, genuinely, look, if you genuinely think you need a media budget to solve a problem, yeah. you know, get the fuck out. I mean, something, okay. I, something I often tell people when we're doing pitching is sell the problem you solve, not the service you provide. Because if, you, if you're selling the service you provide, you'll, it'll, be the, it'll be the cheapest option that wins. And one but, of the problems with procurement, you know, by the way, is they put a whole yeah. load of rules around pitching, which prevent you from solving the problem in an innovative way. True. So, that, so actually, often the biggest value you can ever create as an ad agency is to say, we want to redefine your problem. Yeah. It's not about this. It's all about that. Yeah. Okay. 90% of the time, if you can successfully redefine a problem, um, you've solved it, or, you, or, or at least easier solutions present themselves, yeah. okay? And yet, the very business of essentially trying to make the procurement process fair forces the same straitjacket on everybody and makes that incredibly valuable behaviour almost impossible. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I hate that process, the passion, because what you then start valuing through the process is, you know, timesheet, hourly rates, time spent on the work. And you're not judging, has this transformed my business? Is it solving a big problem that I've got as a, as, as a client? Well, one of the problems with payment by the hour is, I think if you went to an ad agency in 1980 when they were paid on commission, what's important about commission was that agencies made too much money and they weren't allowed to refund it legally. So what they had to do is add commensurate value to their own clients so their clients didn't get resentful. Now, the great advantage of that was you could add value. You had discretion over how that value was added. So it was doing things your clients hadn't told you to do, couldn't pay for, which you might find socially impossible to charge for. Yeah. 
Okay. How we, we have this probably once a month in the behavioral science practice, which is we come up with something which is, okay, in two sentences, we can add five million pounds worth of value to this business. Now, the problem is you can't charge half a million pounds for two sentences. Okay. What you should do is say, okay, we'll give you this thing that's worth half a million pounds. In return, if we make 17% rather than 13% on our main scope of activity, don't get arsy about it. Yeah, okay. And that's how, that's how in any complex business relationship that isn't purely transactional. And there, there are multiple kinds of capitalism, if you think about it. What I would say is there's transactional capitalism, which is prostitution, and there's relational capitalism, which is kind of marriage. And the value exchange in marriage is rather subtle and more subtle and more long-term. Very interesting fact, by the way, which I may, may not be of direct relevance to your, 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 your uh, target audience and your listeners. Very interesting thing. If, fascinatingly, um, in prostitution, uh, someone offers a favoured client a free trick, the person nearly always runs a mile. And the whole point is that the, the value of the thing is that it's transactional. Yes, yeah. once, I, once I pay a check, that's the end of the relationship, all done. It's a one-shot or one-shot-at-a-time game. Okay. Now, the point about that is the second you start accepting freebies, all right, then you've given the person the right to turn up at your office saying, I'm having trouble with the gas bill. Which is exactly <laughs> what You're paying not to have that problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, scenario. so it, it, what we're, what we're mm. failing to understand is that capitalism isn't a monolithic entity, as economists make it seem. It's highly complicated. There are multiple forms which are kind of nested and layered. And in any complex relationship, like an agency relationship, the best way to pay your agency is to overpay them, but continually remind them of the fact. Okay. And so the point I'm making is that there will be some areas of activity where agencies can spot problems that you won't spot, not because they're geniuses, but because our focus is different to yours. We spend a hell of a lot of time anally obsessing about things that is 5% of your life. Okay. Now, just as if you're Marks and Spencer, now, John Kay, the godlike uh, FT um, columnist and, and professor of economics, makes the point that what M&S did with its suppliers under Sir Richard Greenbury was it effectively turned 25 years of social capital with mostly British suppliers uh, into a huge 18-month profit splurge by essentially suddenly sourcing clothes on a transactional basis from low-cost suppliers, typically in uh, the, the, the Far East. Yeah. Okay. And Kay's argument is that in the short term they saved money because what they did is they were no longer paying for the non-transactional part of the purchase. But what happened is they were no longer receiving the non-transactional part of the purchase, which is that all these companies invested heavily in R&D and they took their best ideas to M&S first as an investment in the relationship. And so what happened was you had, you know, a brief period of spectacular product profits followed by falling off a cliff because you hadn't accounted for the non-contractually defined part of a relationship. And so a lot of things, mergers can do this, okay? Um, they're a totally fake activity where you basically for a short time translate social capital or relational capital into financial capital. And you account for the gain in financial capital, and nobody accounts for the loss of, of intangibles. And the long-run cost actually outweighs. And I think, there's a, I think consulting firms are to be hugely blamed for this, that they start everything from a premise of efficiency. And the problem of efficiency is if your definition 
of efficiency is narrow and transactional, quite likely the over-pursuit of that measure will actually lead to more cost than it does gain. Yeah, totally agree. How do marketeers win this? Because I, I think you, you really hit something, this drive for efficient, efficiency over effectiveness. And I think what behavioral science is doing is starting to give the marketer some tools to actually put some value and explain the, the, the benefit of effective over-efficiency. So what would you, your advice be to marketers I mean, one trying of, to... One of, one of them is a very simple thing, but I think everybody can see that it's true. And it makes the point of magic being possible, but it also makes the point, which I think is the most important one, which is that if you take Barr and Sharp's work on differentiation... You also take the Binet and Field work on the difference between long-term brand investment and short-term promotion. I'm a bit more sympathetic to promotion than uh, he is because I think you can do it in a way that does have some sort of brand value if you're clever about it, actually. But we'll park that argument. If you take all that stuff, what you can come to is that the single best source of competitive advantage any company can have may be the ability to do things which the finance director wouldn't like. Okay. And the point is that distinctiveness generally involves some degree of apparent irrationality. Yes. At a very crude level. So water doesn't taste of anything because our brains are calibrated not to notice the taste of water because it's important that we notice things that aren't water, like a decaying yes, carcass, yeah. okay? <laughs> That's why water's so boring. It doesn't yeah. taste of anything because our brains are calibrated around water. Because for most of evolutionary history, that's the only thing we would have drunk, yeah. okay? Beer, I guess, is only four, 5,000 years old. Alcoholic drinks, maybe 10, 15, yeah. I don't know. But it's incredible. It's a blip in terms of our evolutionary history. If, if, our, if our brains had evolved so that water tasted like Dr. Pepper, okay, <laughs> then um, A, the 50% of the population yeah, yeah. would suffer from dehydration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also you wouldn't notice the weird taste of decomposing sheep. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, because of that, there are things you can do which are precisely potent because they're nonsensical or, or seemingly illogical. Yeah. And a great uh, person who captured this, a guy called Kano, uh, professor at the University of Tokyo who developed Kano theory. And he said in, in the whole field of product design, uh, there are three aspects. There are what you might call threshold attributes. They don't create any joy. They don't provide differentiation. It's simply a case that the absence of them makes you rubbish. So they're table stakes. And that would be, if I buy a carton of milk, the fact that the container doesn't leak. Yes. Okay, right. It's not that I go, brilliant, this, this container isn't leaking all over my fridge. It's simply the fact that if I buy a brand of milk and it repeatedly leaks, I'm never going to buy it again. End of story. Then there are performance attributes. And performance attributes are, if you're selling something like a cassette deck in the 1980s, that would be battery, that would be battery life, build quality, sound reproduction quality, volume, you know, number of watts for the speaker, that kind of stuff, okay? And generally, the relationship there with the human brain is a linear one. You know, the better you are, the more they like you, but it's a linear thing. Then Carnot believes there's a third thing, which are called uh, essentially delight attributes. And there it's a completely exponential relationship. The strange thing about delight attributes is they may be surprisingly tangential to the main function of the product itself. So in the, I always give this example, in the case of toothpaste, it's stripes. Yes. 
Okay, utterly pointless rationally. Okay, the finance director hates stripy toothpaste because he goes, well, as soon as you put it in your mouth, it's all mixed together anyway. So what's the point of keeping yeah, it yeah. separate in the tube? In the cassette deck, it's the eject mechanism. You know, you remember. Yeah, this, yeah, okay? yeah, I remember, yeah. If you pressed eject, yeah. and there was some sort of pneumatic damping going on. Yeah, they love was a that. Bit of a counterweight. Just come out nice and slowly, and, and yes, yeah, slow. Nice and it was like something from oh, you know, two thousand and one. That's brilliant. Okay, and we really, really love it to an extent which is entirely disproportionate. Now, my Carnot theory is government doesn't do Carnot theory because it doesn't have marketers. Okay, now I'll give you an example of when you had Carnot theory and when you didn't. Half a billion spent renewing St Pancras Station, but they had the longest champagne bar in Europe. Okay, and that's what everybody remembers, and it's a noticeable thing, and everybody goes. Ooh, yes, it's got the longest champagne. That's a totally stupid claim to fame, okay? And I jokingly said, no one ever goes, I'm thinking of going to a champagne bar. Do you know any long ones? Yes. <laughs> now, London Bridge Station cost a billion to do, and it's twice the price. What they didn't have is a gratuitous wow factor that allowed the consumer's brain to solidify. Now, I would have taken it and said, okay, let's have one less Oliver bonus, and we'll have one less coffee shop, and we're going to take a bit of a hit on the rent, but we're going to have Europe's biggest florist, and they've got to stay open until 10 o'clock at night, and they've got to cover a chunk of the forecourt with a massive display of flowers, okay? And so when you come down the escalators, people go, shit, look at the flowers. Now, okay, that is a tiny rounding error in terms of the one billion cost of the station. In terms of psychological efficacy, now, here, here's an interesting thing. I'd like to introduce to a board meeting the concept of emotional efficiency. Because what's efficient to a manufacturer or to an economist isn't efficient to a psychologist. What actually matters in psychology can be extraordinarily small, but disproportionately noticeable. But your naming there is really good, though, isn't it? Just yeah. by putting it in, the, in those terms, a bit like behavioural science, you know, emotional efficiency, you're talking the language of finance. And the other phrase I'd ban, it's rather like um, George Lakoff, who's a, a Berkeley psychologist. He's to the left of centre, uh, and he's always trying to help the Democrats to win by pointing out how Democrats get things wrong. But one of his arguments is that uh, you should not allow the phrase tax relief, because it automatically portrays tax as a burden yes. uh, that needs to be minimised, not as what you might call membership fees. Yeah. Okay? You know, I, because actually the Labour Party makes a mistake there because they're so obsessed with talking about redistribution, they create the impression that the only point of tax is redistribution. It's also potholes. Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I live in Seven Oaks. There are parts of the roads around Seven Oaks which are, you know, I mean, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was better maintained than that. <laughs> Okay, and you know, so quite a lot of my tax actually benefits me personally on a selfish level. Yeah. You know, the money I pay to the NHS benefits me, um, and so by making it all about redistribution in terms of their conversation, I think they actually. I also made the point, by the way, that every marketer must be opposed to a fifty percent tax rate on principle because it should be forty nine point nine nine percent, which yes. would feel a lot cheaper. Um, the other phrase I'd ban will be added value because it makes it sound optional. Ah, uh, yeah. It suggests that the values inherent in the product are that marketing adds optionally yeah. a few optional, a little bit of magic fairy yes. dust, yeah, which yeah. makes it a little bit better. No, no, yeah. no, no. An Austrian would say that marketing is as integral 
to the value created in the buyer's mind as reality is. And therefore, by changing the context of comparison, by changing the story, by changing the frame of reference, you can create value out of nowhere, hence the title of the book, Alchemy. I wanted to quickly ask you as well about advertising. So, yeah. and Because I was looking at the Christmas ads recently, and uh, we've been tracking them at, uh, over at System One. And it's interesting to see the difference between what the public think of Christmas ads versus what the ad industry think of Christmas ads. Do, do you think there's... There's, there's a separation between what the ad industry value and what the general public value. Yeah, um, I, I think one thing which British advertising is particularly inimical towards, um, and it may be, a pro- pro- it may be a product of kind of male creative directors and so forth, uh, is um, what you might call Werther's original yes. advertising. The Americans can do it much better than we can. Anything that plays on heartstrings, yeah. it's rather in the same way that, you know, it's unfashionable to like country music, yeah. you know. Uh, anything that plays effectively on the heartstrings, we tend to disparage. Um, and consumers love it. Uh, and so I think, I think there's an interesting failing there. I think there are a whole load of questions about this, which is that what's award-worthy and what the public like has probably... Now, this brings us to Orlando, I think. One of the reasons I think that Orlando um, may have spotted this decline in the efficacy of uh, uh, highly awarded advertising may not be a product of the declining efficacy of advertising, but the changing nature of what's awarded. Yes, definitely. And we... Fortunately, by the way, have started awarding things which are actually quite promotional because they use technology in a very clever way. Um, it's worth remembering that long-term brand building is kind of boring. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of you know. Uh, and the, it used to be the sexy bit, didn't it? it used to, yeah. But actually, if you think about it, you see, if you if you've got an obsessive culture with disruption, if your responsibility is to maintain an extremely valuable brand over time, you know, if you're working with Tide in the United States, you know. In many ways, actually, a large part of your job is do what we did last time, but do it just a bit differently, okay? And so there's a problem there in that what builds a creative career... It's a problem in journalism, by the way, which is that um, negative journalism builds your career ten times faster than positive does. And so one of my arguments in The Spectator recently was that the rise of populism was partly caused by the fact that when you did have centralist, entirely reasonable politicians, it wasn't as if the press said how good this was. Yeah, it yeah. attacked them with exactly, exactly the same, the same vigor as, as anybody before. else. Yeah. And so there, there are really interesting questions. There are a whole wide of questions. One, marketers being 95% remain yes. is a bit worrying. Yes. Not necessarily because you support... I voted remain myself. I, once the vote went yeah. the other way, you respect the result, end of story. I'm yeah. very simple on that. It's very... Um, straightforward. But the fact they couldn't understand why anybody voted otherwise, or even worse, resorted to insulting them, was to me horrible. I mean, David Ogilvy's The Consumer's Not a Moron, She's Your Wife, is an outdated (laughs) phrase, but nonetheless, uh, the act of despising the consumer is an incredibly dangerous approach. Um, Because it's, apart from anything else, counterproductive. You don't get Ford insulting Vauxhall drivers, do you? Because if you want to win someone over, generally you reach out to them rather than putting them down. And, you know, it's very interesting that that people working in advertising would resort to this business of going on social media and being rude about people who disagreed with them, which is terrifying. But there are a load of other biases. One, of course, is that we're metropolitan. Two, we're very narrow in age range. I mean, as a 53-year-old in this business, I'm geriatric. I was going to say. I mean... uh, 
Anyone over 40, pretty uh, much. No, it's no. Like, I, mean, yeah. I always say that you know, anybody over 40 is by definition brilliant, because if you survive this long... You must be yeah, good, yeah. You must be good. So, so I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've run out of, uh, run out of road. <laughs> I mean, crazy yeah. stuff. We're very narrow, tend to be narrow in terms of background, ethnicity, lots yeah. of other questions of that. But one of the things is just living in London is unrepresentative. I think someone in Tesco made the brilliant phrase, you know, London is a terrible place from which to make decisions because people tend to be cash-rich, time-poor. They're obsessed with time-saving yeah. in a way that large swathes of the country are the opposite. They're cash-poor, time-rich. You know, a large part of physical shopping is it's an activity. Yeah. Well, also, know. in terms of wealth, there's the, there's the big um, fallout last week, wasn't there? The guy that earned £80,000 yeah. and said on question time he can't believe he's in the top 5%. You know, and it caused a massive backlash. Interestingly, he's kind of right in one way, which is far more than 5% of people will earn more than £80,000 at some point in their life. Yes. Or if you look at it in terms of wealth, in terms of access to wealth. Ah, interesting. In terms of, by the way, um, the Labour Party, this really annoys me because as someone who's wealth poor but salary rich... Okay, I've, you know, I've brought up kids. My wife works as a hospital chaplain, etc. So it's a, effectively a one-salary household. One of the things that annoys me is the conflating of income and wealth. And actually, it would take someone on median income 10 years, untaxed, spending no money at all to save enough money to have median wealth. Okay. So the property market has created a complete disconnect between earnings and wealth. Uh, also, I'd argue that people at the very top, that the wealth thing is much more disproportionate than the um, than the earnings thing. Uh, one of the things I'd do, by the way, as an ergodicity uh, fanatic, is I'd allow people to spend their student loan on anything they like. Uh, yeah, that, that that's a good idea. So now, give them an upfront yeah. loan and say, to be honest, what most people want is a one or two year course yeah. to give them a bit of preparation. And the rest of the money might be spent on moving house, you know, whatever it is you need to get started in life. The fact that you're given this thing and you're forced to spend it on education forces people who would not want to go to university to spend that money on education in order not to have a stigma above their head of, I didn't go to university. If you think about it, okay, if the government gave you two grand to spend on a suit for your first job interview, right, what would actually end up happening is You'd have to spend two thousand quid on the suit, and, and people would then start competing with the equivalent of the, Who's M, got the best suit, the M you know? Phil, yeah. which <laughs> yes. would be you know there'd be Savile Row bespoke yes. or things made out of the tears of unicorns, yeah, yeah. and the whole thing would just barrel into an insane yeah. kind of arms race. And the same things happen with education. It, mm. It's I also find it insulting because you learn just as much working as you do. In, oh, at least if, if you're anything, a more. Yeah, you yeah, learn yeah, far yeah. more. You learn well, than you yeah. Do. And you're being paid for it. For I know. Well, okay. I, well, I did, I, did uh, I guess they call them sandwich courses, don't they? Where, yep. where you kind of spend a year Fantastic. out of work. I learned a ton. Of course I mean, I, I felt rich, actually, because I was, I was earning three or four times the amount that I was a, getting a student, on my students. Yeah. Um, and I was learning a ton. It was, it was invaluable. Yeah. So I think it's really important to look at that unrepresentative nature thing which is where metropolitan... So certain things, if you're a Londoner, you don't understand. I was just recently chatting about click and collect, and I made the point that to a Londoner, click and collect is a pain in the ass because you've got to break your journey home and it involves a lot of walking. To anybody whose journey to work involves a bicycle or a car, it's slightly different. It's probably two minutes out of your way on your drive home from the station. And so certain things, I think, Londoners are completely blind to because they live in a, in, a, in a very strange bubble. And advertising people and marketing people tend to live in a demographic bubble, particularly, of course, the problem with London, uh, is once you move out to the provinces or the suburbs, as I did, 
your general social circle encompasses two or three decades of age range. In London, it's about four years. Yes, that's yeah, true. All your yeah. mates are like a bit older than you yeah, or a yeah. tiny bit younger. Yeah. Once you move out, once you move out a bit, so you have people who are in their 70s and people who are in their 30s and you all kind of muck along. So there are lots of aspects where I think uh, it's a very dangerous place. As for, I think it was Frederick Forsyth said, oh, no, it's John Le Carre, isn't it? A desk is a very dangerous place from which to view the world. Yes. <laughs> and actually a desk in London is an especially de- dangerous place Brilliant. from which to view the well, world. Well, listen, I think, I think we're just running out of time. So I just wanted to ask you my last question. Slightly unfair, this one, but uh, I'll, I'll put it to you and see where we get to. What, Beatles um, or Stones? <laughs> you know, yes. Um, tell me one thing you've never told anyone else in your life. Now, given you've, you've done a lot of media, you must have told a lot of stories. <laughs> um, never anybody in my life ever at all. Yeah, actually, there's one thing. Um, <laughs> genealogy, which is um, uh, a re- relative of mine, uh, tracked down our family tree. And we found someone living just outside Seattle as the closest American relative who's currently wanted for murder and abduction. No. Attempted murder and abduction. <laughs> there you go. I thought oh, that's pretty good. Oh, go on, that's good. I'll take about. that one. That's a little bit of disclosure. All I'm right, brilliant. Add, I'm go only to add that um, just, just to defend the genotype a little bit, that um, uh, the other relative was actually Miss Teen South Carolina. Whoa. So what that's a, probably even oh, there more you go. What a combination. There you there go. You go. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you definitely heard it here first. Um, Rory, it's been a blast. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Um, just quickly, how can people get hold of you, follow you? Uh, Twitter is the best first port of call, which is at Rory Sutherland. I'm obviously on LinkedIn. Um, starting to be doing more work with LinkedIn, in particular on B2B marketing. Uh, The Spectator, um, fortnightly, uh, you can subscribe online or to the burgeoning paper edition, which weirdly and fascinatingly has more paper subscribers than ever before. So the idea that print is dead is neatly kiboshed by that. Uh, And um, obviously you can contact me at Ogilvy. Great. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rory. Thank you very much.